I think FIFA or the FA or someone needs to come out and establish what the actual laws and rules in this instance are. Brighton, I think, might be there or thereabouts. I'm going to go with Southampton. Vestergaard in particular. Ever since he's cut his hair, he's turned into this Maldini <laughs> type of player. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of the Rematch Podcast. I'm Dan and I'm joined by Adam, Sam, Cam and Ollie. The five of us are all friends who met at university in Middlesbrough, forming a student radio show covering all things football that lives on despite our time there being over. Where does the name Rematch come from? Well, we're not really sure to be honest, but we'll be coming to you every week discussing all the hot topics in the world of football. You can follow us on Twitter at Rematch Podcast, where you can feel free to get involved with us and let us know your thoughts on the show and on the week's football. We're all adhering to current government guidelines and this is why we are doing it on Zoom. In today's episode, we'll be discussing just how open this season's Premier League is, as well as the art of diving. Is it clever or just wrong? We'll also drop down a few levels and discuss the COVID relief fund for lower league sides. Is it fair? Keep listening to find out. Right, so let's kick things off in the Premier League in what I'd say has been a very interesting and weird season so far. As it stands, there are just six points separating Liverpool at the top and Crystal Palace in 13th place. At the time of recording this podcast, Leeds United are yet to play Leicester City, so it could yet get even tighter at the top of the table. This time last season, after seven games played, Liverpool had a five-point gap at the top and a 14-point gap between them and Wolves in 13th place. The bookies still have Man City and Liverpool as favourites to win the title. However, my question to you, lads, is are we going to see another Leicester-type season where an unexpected team wins? Not this season. I think we would have seen a team really break out by now. Like As you mentioned there, Liverpool were five points clear. Obviously, when Leicester did it a few years ago, they weren't five. I don't think they were five points clear at that time, but I think they were in the top two at least. They might have been top of the league as well from an early stage. So I think they'd have to be, I think they'd have to be a team that was, that was top, that was quite clearly going to challenge. And I, and I look at Leicester and I go, it's probably a better team. Um, maybe they haven't got the individuals like Mares and Kante anymore, but I just don't. I just don't. I just don't think there's enough. I don't know. There's nothing special about that team, in my opinion, and that might sound a bit harsh because because they're doing very well, and I think they will probably. I think they'll definitely get Europa League again this year. Sorry, um, Cam, the question was, are we watching another <laughs> Leicester-type season? Isn't a team winning who's not like your Liverpool? This, this year, no. This, this year, no. I don't think so. But, but like I say, I think Leicester would be the closest to do that. I don't see any... I see the, the traditional right. big six going back to maybe some sort of norm- normality. I can't see they Manchester United 15, uh, slumming it down. Yeah, I know, but I can't see them. Just, I can't see them staying like that. Whether it's whether Ollie gets sacked or I don't know, or if you can just turn it around. But I, I think the top four would be pretty normal. Do so you think that we've still got a traditional top six cup? In some respects, yeah. You, you look at. I'm talking about reputation here, not so much. I guess because last, last season kind of threw that out of the water. Last season was a really random year. Um, not just because of what everything that was going on outside of football as well that affected football but you know obviously the league table whether that was because football's affected so heavily um that but that was random I think this year I think I think there'll still be a few surprises like I said I think Leicester will be up there I'm not sure whether they'll get Champions League football I think Leeds will definitely push for Europa League I'm again not sure but I, but I think the top four will be pretty pretty steady 
steady to what you would maybe predict at the start of the season. I think the fact that Liverpool are only two points clear, yet it still feels like it's theirs to lose, kind of says that it is anybody's. Like I, like, like Spurs are in second and Southampton are in fourth, and I don't feel like either of them have had a particularly good start to the season, yet they're in the top four. So I think it could mean like we see Villa lose, uh, beat Liverpool 7-2, then lose Southampton 4-0 down after an hour. So I think it could, I think really could be anybody's to finish anywhere because anyone can beat anybody else. Well, I think Adam's exactly right. You look at Aston Villa putting seven past Liverpool. Liverpool have got the best attack and the worst defence in the league. I, without Virgil van Dijk, I can't see them challenging for the title, unfortunately. I think he's such an influential player in that back line. Ross Fabinho as well, who was someone who, who would uh, partner him when, in the, in the, sorry, in, would partner Gomez in the absence of Virgil van Dijk. I can't see Liverpool challenging for the title with a, such a leaky back line that they've got at the moment. Uh, Adam mentioned on Tottenham, and uh, if, if Tottenham uh, win that game against Newcastle, which for a debatable VAR decision uh, against Eric Dyer, and they don't bottle it against West Ham in typical Spurs fashion, then I, th- I think they're close, closer to the title than, uh, than Liverpool are at the moment. You talk about unexpected teams to come and win that title. Tottenham's last title was in the 1960s, which is far, far back past Leicester City, past Arsenal. I think for a title shout, they're massively unexpected. And uh, with their forward line of Kane, Son and Bale, is, is there a better forward line in the Premier League than that? Going back to your original question, I, I don't think we'll see anything as remarkable as what happened with Leicester. But I can see a surprise team maybe getting top four. I think if you look at the home advantage, I think that's obviously lost with no fans. I think the lack of fans has played a, played a role in terms of the official decisions. I think we're seeing a lot of more big calls being made from referees. I think a lack of pre-season is, is clearly playing a factor for some teams. And it wouldn't surprise me if someone does end up getting top four. I think my tip at the moment is Southampton. Uh, I think they've got the highest points per game ratio since June. If they can keep up that type of form, which they, they do look like they are going to do, then they, it really wouldn't be a surprise if a team like that does change for Europe this season. So you mentioned there, earlier about there being no fans in stadiums. Do you think that that is having a massive impact on scores at the minute? I think Aston Villa 7, Liverpool 2 the other week. Crazy stuff happening. Is it to do with no fans? Would that have happened in a stadium full? Obviously, it's only hypotheticals that if, if, you, if you're trying to answer that. But I think it, it works both ways because I think some players thrive under pressure and I think some players obviously crumble under pressure. Um, you look at stadiums such as Bellas Park and Ellen Road, they, they clearly have an effect when... Uh, in giving an influence to their team. So I definitely think the lack of no fans in the ground plays a part in the results. Who is the biggest sort of surprise package this season so far? Oli, you mentioned uh, Southampton, didn't you? Who's everyone else's surprise package so far this season? I'd say uh, Man United for the wrong reasons. Um, <laughs> what about for the right reasons? <laughs> I mean, you can look at anybody in the top half. You know, you've, I mean, all, all the sides that you're not used to seeing up there, when, when you see them up there, it's, it's a pleasant surprise. I mean, I think Southampton probably, when you see that, Less than 12 months ago, like 9-0 at home to a side now above in the league. You, I think you're hard to look, look away from Southampton. But Everton don't get mentioned really because they're always that sort of nearly big side and nearly the top six side. So for them to actually be breaking into the top four and pushing for the title potentially is something you don't expect to see. Villa, the fact they stayed up on the last day of the season. And I mean, Wolves haven't been in, in the Premier League long, yet they've already established themselves as not just a top half side, but a side pushing for Europe. And what about Leeds? A Leeds aside that you think uh, a bit unexpected because 
the end of the day, championship last season. And this season, they've came mm. into their own and nearly beat Liverpool, nearly beat Man City. Mm. Are they someone who yeah, could I, maybe contend? Yeah, I remember I remember writing about Leeds um, the other week. And, and, I, and I was looking at the table and I was looking at Leicester, and obviously they're playing Leicester. And I wrote that potentially one of the, whoever wins could go top of the league. And I've just looked at the table now, just before the Leicester-Leeds game kicks off, and Leicester are 8th and Leeds are 12th. Um, obviously, neither can go top um, after results this weekend. But that's quite crazy that a team that could have gone top if results had gone their way, if they lose, they're going to be, be sat in 12th Leeds United, um, which isn't going to look as great of a start a season as maybe what, maybe what we're potentially going to make it out. But I, I think whoever wins tonight, I think will be my pick. I think I, think I mentioned uh, the quality that Leicester do have, even though I think they do lack something special. Um, but Leeds, but, Le- but Leeds have just, I think it's that belter factor. I think it really is. I think that's their something special in their team. I don't say, so I think Leicester have got the best squad on paper, but, but yeah, Leeds have, have got Bielsa and you can't, you can't deny them that. Sounds such a daft shout at the moment, but I think Brighton might surprise a few getting towards the latter end of the season. The, the Graham Potter implementing the style that he wants. You've got the back three, Webster, Burn and Dunk when he's fit. Uh, if you can get them l- not leaking the goals that they have done at the start of the season. Um, they've got some real good quality going for a Trossard finally coming to be the player that we thought he could be last season, maybe not hit the heights in, the, in his first season in English football. But um, Brighton, I think, might be there or thereabouts pushing for Europe towards the end of the season. That seems such a rogue shout considering the start that they've had. But um, I think they've got good players. And you look at Mopai, Aaron Connolly, who was his breakthrough player last season. I think they've got good quality. And if they can uh, stay injury free and start playing the football that we saw in some aspects against Chelsea, a little bit against Tottenham on Sunday, um, they've got some good players. And, and I, th- I think that they might surprise a few towards the latter end of the season. Bryce has scored more goals this season than uh, Wolves, Arsenal, Man City. Man United, I think that it doesn't. I think it sounds stupid, Sam, but um, I think it probably actually isn't when you think when you actually sort of look into it a little bit more. So, like, I'd, I'd love to hate you for that and, and laugh at you, but I don't think I can, unfortunately. Cheers, mate. <laughs> if you were to pick a side outside of the top six to win, I know you've just mentioned Brighton there, but to win the league this season outside the traditional top six, so your Liverpool, Man City, Man United, Chelsea, Spurs, and Arsenal, I want to name. And don't get me wrong, we might look at this in a few weeks' time and we might just think, what on earth were we thinking? Which we probably will. But I want to name, Adam, I'll start with you. Leicester City. Now, back then, last season to finish top four, and they very, very nearly did. So I think the, the, they know how to do it, which I think is, for a non-traditional big six side, is, is something that no one else has in that, in that division. They, they know how to win the league. They know how to finish in the top four or the top six. Um, yeah, I, 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 I couldn't agree more, Adam, really. I think if they can bring the fireworks, so to speak, as they go off about three doors next to me. Um, <laughs> you know, then I, th- I, I, can't, I can't see a reason why they can't win it. I, I did mention earlier that I don't think um, they'll win it, but if they can, I don't know. I think if you've got players like Dennis Pratt, who are very creative, James Madison as well, if they can keep him fit. And of course, for me, they've got one of the best goal scorers, if not the best goal scorer in the division, Jamie Vardy. Ollie? Yeah, I mean, I can't wait to look stupid on this show, but I'm going to go with my original choice for Europe. I'm going to go with Southampton. I think if you just look at the team, 
turned them into brilliant players. Vestergaard in particular, ever since he's cut his hair, he's turned into this Maldini <laughs> type of player. And um, James Ward-Prowse, he's, he's always been touted to have quite high potential. And I think this is the year that he can really show that. Obviously, he's great from dead balls. And I think if he improves his all-round game, it's not only going to be a boost to Southampton, but it can be a big boost to the national side as well. So I, I'll go with Southampton. And Sam? Ollie won't like me saying it, but I don't think you can deny the Carlo Ancelotti factor at Everton for a European shout. You look at the quality they've brought in over the summer. Hamas uh, Rodriguez is a world-class player. He could really be the difference between them finishing outside the top six. And in it, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, what a transformation he's been. The one-touch finishes, top, top of the league goal scorer, or at least he was until this weekend. But um, he, he started the season on fire, hasn't he? And uh, again, if they can shake up that back line, they've brought in another goalkeeper who can challenge Pickford, which might be what he needs to regain his former glory. We look at the quality he had at the last World Cup. He hasn't hit the heights of that, certainly. But... Um, with someone pushing behind him, he's finally got the competition for his place and it might push him back onto the form we know he can be. Um, you look at the fullbacks, Luca Dean is a solid shout for Fantasy Premier League, isn't he? He seems to assist every other weekend in the Premier League. Uh, he's, a, he's a quality player, as is Seamus Coleman on his day, and Everton could really do something this year with the quality additions they've brought into the side. I'd personally go for Wolves. They're currently sat in fifth place. I'd say they're really hard to beat. Really hard to beat this season. No Europe as well to play for. I think they'll have the squad to really push on. They've Nelson Semedo. I think that's an absolutely incredible signing from Barcelona. I mean, he looks a real player going forward. Not so sure about defensively. Conor Cordy, I'd say, is one of the best centre-backs in the league. I think it's someone who Liverpool should have went straight after. They've got Jimenez up front, who's one of the best strikers in the league. And, of course, one of the best wingers in the league. My personal favourite, Adama Traore. <laughs> Well, we've got some Premier League predictions there that no doubt in May time we can look back on and probably have a laugh at one or two of us some, for some outrageous decisions. But now I want to get on to the topic of diving. We saw a bit of play acting over the weekend. More Hamid Salah and Callum Wilson in particular are the two cases I want to focus on. But I think it's something that needs talking about. You're talking about players going down a little too theatrically for my liking. Whether they dive or not is a different debate. There's definitely contact. It's both definitely penalties, in my opinion. But it's when you're going over in such a theatrical way that it, you're making the most of the contact and then some more, which I don't think is particularly right. So what is the solution to this sort of problem where you see players go down over theatrically? Is it giving them a yellow card as well as a penalty? Have you guys got some different opinions on what could happen in these situations? I just think in terms of creating some rule like that, it's, it's just going to be like VAR all over again, where it, it's going to be a matter of opinion. Um, in terms of the, the Salah and the Wilson ones, just because of things that have happened in the past where players do stay on the feet, you can see why they've gone down. For all the times that Mo Salah goes down, there's probably as many cases where he stayed on his feet and not got anything. And obviously, it is, I don't want to call it cheating, but it, it, it is embarrassing. But I feel like he has to do that to get something. Yeah, I'd agree. With with the current rules and in the modern game, the referees have literally no choice but to give penalties. And for both Salah and Wilson's, I think they were both penalties. That's just the way it is. In my opinion, you can dive and it still be a penalty. It, it's one of them where it's it's called like over dramatization, isn't it? Players will be watching other players every week and win penalties for stuff soft stuff. They'll think, why why can't I do that? So that's why the problem is circulating. But there's got to be some sort of 
there's got to be something put in place where it just stops this because it it's going too far now. It is getting worse and worse every. I don't season, really want to talk too much about VAR because I think there's another podcast in that entirely, and there's plenty of others that they do in that for us. But is this not what it was brought in for? If players have a little tap on the heel and maybe don't go over, but it's a certain foul inside the penalty area, that should be given as a penalty, and therefore the player should then be. Um, praised for staying on their feet rather than going to the floor. But we've seen the exact opposite. Ollie mentioned the word embarrassing. I think that's exactly what it is. Players throwing themselves to the floor under the slightest of contacts. Yes, there is contact. And yes, both are penalties. But that shouldn't mean that you have to throw yourself to the floor in an attempt to get that penalty. Blame surely then lies with the referee. I think what you mentioned at the start of that, of what you were saying there, Sam, is that VAR should be coming in to deal with these situations. I think it's actually doing the opposite. I think VAR tend, and it's not every, not every case because every every tackle is different, every situation is different. But you know, in most cases, from what I've seen, when VAR referee's not given a decision on the pitch, maybe player's gone down, and the referee thinks it's gone down too easy, for example, and maybe not seeing it to dive. VAR's looked at it, and maybe there is contact there, and maybe it should be a penalty. But from what my experience of VAR was that they've not wanted to change the on-field decision because there's not it's not clear and obvious it's not a clear and obvious mistake and then that brings you back once again to that it's still opinion really what's clear and obvious what's clear and obvious to one referee what's what's not clear and obvious what's clear and obvious to us as fans i don't really want to discredit the referees but i think if they do see a player stay on the feet they'll see that there's not enough contact there so they don't have to make that decision that something that could receive a lot of stick for Whereas I think that, that's, that's the main reason. Referees won't give a decision if a player does stay on the feet. And I don't think it'll go to the VAR either if the player stays on the feet. The one with the Salah one, you probably don't notice that if Salah, if Salah doesn't go down. But now Salah has gone down, you see that Mazuaku comes in with quite a lot of force. And I, I think, although he does go down embarrassingly, he, he has to do that. For me, the, the problem is that contact doesn't equal foul. You can make contact with someone and not foul them. And I think that line's so ambiguous that, I mean, there's five people here. We, we could probably see things all in different ways. And so they are can't help that situation. For me, I mean, apparently I'm the only one that thinks this, which surprised me. But I don't think that side one is a penalty because I don't think as well. I think, yes, there is contact. But again, there is minimal, minimal contact. And I think anyone on the pitch, that wouldn't even be given as a foul. But... But do, I do, but do I see it as a dive? Probably not, because unfortunately it's part of the game. I mean, I just had a search of diving in football earlier. There's even there's a Wikipedia page about diving in football and about people saying how it's good, how it's bad, how it's part of the game, how it's not. And I think we've got to, got to accept that it is part of the game. I and mean, only you're obviously a Liverpool fan. When Salah wins a penalty like that, do you celebrate that penalty being given? Or do you actually sort of hide away into your chair and think, oh, why has he done that? I don't think that with anything that happens that happens in football at the moment you can celebrate it with obviously VAR but when I when I saw that personally I thought he's gone down easy that's that's never a never a penalty but in my opinion when you look at it on the replays Mazuaku does come in with quite a lot of force and Mazuaku himself has admitted that, it's, that it is a penalty um, but as a Liverpool fan it, it is embarrassing to see something like that but I can't understand why why he's done that. So then if you're talking about the embarrassment and throwing themselves to the floor and you can see why he's done it, do you think there needs to be some sort of punishment for a player then if they do throw themselves to the floor embarrassingly? Because you've talked about that fine line, but then that fine line then becomes so obscure 
that people don't know when it's a dive, when it's the penalty, if there's contact, if there isn't. If you put down a clear marker and say, right, it's a penalty, but you've also embarrassed yourself there, here's your punishment, will that deter players from doing it in the future? I don't think, I don't think a referee can give you a card or, you know, if Simbin's ever come in or anything like that, you know, I don't think you can ever give, it, give anything on the pitch. I think it has to be done, you know, after the game. Um, and it has to be looked at as if someone, if you're appealing a red card, for example, for me, you have to, you have to really look and say that it has the player, you know, and watch it. And you can't, it can't just be an instinct thing from the ref because otherwise you're going to get, I think you could get, you get to a point either where there's so many other cards being given out for players falling over basically, or you're going to get to the point where it's just, you never see it all because refs don't want to make that decision, especially if a player's already on a yellow card. Then and it's late in the game and they've gone down um, due to a shoulder barge or something like that and the referee's seen it as a penalty or maybe not shoulder barge but maybe they've got a hand in the back and they've gone down and they've thrown their arms up in the air. The referee's surely not going to send, especially like in that situation, not going to send Salah off, is he? For who's was probably ready to step up and take the penalty <laughs> for Liverpool. He's surely not going to send him off. So for me, I would say it has to be a fine. What for, the size of the fine? I don't know. Um, but a fine from the FA, I think that's what the decision that I'd do, if anything. But even that, I'm, I'm not convinced on. See, I think a, a foul like what happened to Salah, that's not a dive, in my opinion. There was, a, there was contact there, and he's over-dramatised it. A dive is when you preempt contact. When, when this, you see players, and they're running at speed, and then all of a sudden, they'll just take a tumble because they think they're going to get kicked. That's a dive. The difference is Salah's already had the action on him, so you can't exactly give that a retrospective ban or a fine or whatever you want to give. I, th- I think there's got to be a, a balance here. But a dive for me is, is when there is no contact whatsoever and they've preempted it. Yeah. So there's no punishment at all then for throwing yourself to the floor embarrassingly? I think the punishment is the embarrassment. Is that enough? At the end of the day, he's, he's, the referee's given a penalty, so he's got what the whole point of it was. But if Salah's then got the penalty, surely that encourages that behaviour because he's got the end result that he wanted? Yeah, well, this, this is the issue. and He's obviously got what he wanted, so then more players will do it. And this is the, the never-ending sort of circle that we're going to end up going in. And I'm sure it'll come up on a podcast in the future. It's part of the game and it always will be part of the game until maybe a ban comes in place and prevents it. But how do you manage that? There's, there's no solution because it would have been done by now, I think. I don't think there'll be a ban serious enough to stop players doing it all together. You would have to find them two weeks wages, I think, to stop them doing it. Because at the end of the day, look, how many times are we going to talk about this this season? You know, I think at most you're going to get is maybe one one a week, potentially, you know, on average. So, look, if a player is going to take, so it's probably going to happen to one player four, five times a season. I'm sure I, I would take five weeks worth of fines to to get Wednesday 12 points, <laughs> for example. Oh, you would this season, know. yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> I'd do a lot for 12 points. Uh. I, 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 think problem, I think the problem with bringing in a punishment like that is who determines whether a player has gone down uh, theatrically or not. It, if a player hasn't gone down theatrically and he's gone down naturally but he gets a fine, then it creates some sort of controversy again and we're back to square one. Yeah. We're back discussing it again. Because then it's like, 
who's the better actor? Because then it's like playing the referee all over again. Oh, he's made a good dive there, they'll say, because he's felt the floor in a natural way. But if you fall in an unnatural way, then it's a bad dive and it's a, it's a fan. I get completely what you're saying there, Ollie. I think we need to accept it is part of the game because it isn't just for penalties that we see this. Like whenever there's a defender trying to shield the ball from going out of play, if the attacker so much as touches their back and they go to the ground, they get a foul for it. Now, I don't think that that's a foul in the same way I don't think that the salary incident was a foul. But because it happens in the penalty area, it doesn't make it any more or less relevant than when it happens anywhere else on the pitch. I think FIFA or the FA or someone needs to come out and establish what the actual laws and rules in this instance are because I think they're so cloudy, we don't know what actually quantifies a foul. Because I don't think anybody, when in that sort of situation, when a defender goes down, when they felt the slightest of touches, I don't think any of us think that's a foul. But that's how we've ended up having to accept it, if you know what I mean. And that, that to me, is, is, is what's the most not right. What is a foul? A couple of pundits in the Match of the Day studio are saying that's a Brighton free kick, but the referee and VAR say, oh no, that's a Spurs penalty. And there's questions whether it was even in the box anyway. So. You know, there's a, there's a lot of opinions being thrown about and quite often they're polar opposites. Well, maybe I'm just the football purist then and all this overdramatics prima donna's here to stay and I'm just going to have to get used to it. Right, so as a lower league and a non-league fan, I think you're going to get accustomed to my talking points being about the lower, the sort of, the proper football level, shall we call it. And I want to talk about the, the funding packages that have been given out to National League and National League North and South clubs because I want to see if you think they're fair or not. So the bigger, inverted commas, bigger sides in the National League based on average attendances, which are Notts County, Stockport, Wrexham, Chesterfield, Yeovil and Torquay, all receive £95,000 a month. And then, the, and then the remaining 16 clubs in that division get £84,000 a month. And then the big five, based on average attendance, are the National League North and South combined, which are York, Hereford, Chester, Dulwich, Hamlet and Maidstone, receive £36,000 a month. And the rest of the teams in the sixth tier receive 30000 Now, off the, on the offset, is that fair? That it's based on average attendance? And even if it is based on average attendance, is it fair that it's, there's such a vast difference between the fifth tier and the sixth tier? I mean, when you first put it out like that, it sounds unfair. It's, it sounds like teams are done bad by and other teams are favouritised. But what I'd say is, it does, like the government doesn't have unlimited money. They can't give everyone, I don't think, an equal amount because that won't fill what the clubs need. I think te- teams like Notts County will need more than a National League North side will because that, they've got bigger wage bills. It seems yeah. to me like it's fair. The only thing I'd say is average attendance. The, the fig, there's too many clubs getting the same amount of money, but the average attendances will be different. So it doesn't sound like it's yeah. divided up properly in a way. Like there's too many clubs getting, if you're not having the same amount of money, despite them obviously not having the exact same average attendance. I don't understand that bit. Feels rushed to me. Like I say, to move on from what Dan's just said, it feels like they've just kind of thrown a number out there, which has obviously been calculated, but then they've kind of gone, right, well, we're just going to give it to these, the, the, the biggest clubs, as you said. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and as you say, I, I, don't, I don't know what Notts' attendance is, um, but I imagine it's quite a lot bigger than and Wrexham as well, um, compared to some of the other quote unquote big teams that you are getting the same amount of well, money for. And then it's the same, same with going into the National League North and South. If it's just if they're just basing on attendances, then surely they should just forget who's in the National League North and South and, and the National League 
and just go, who's got the average attendances? Just put them all in one big table yeah. and then say, look, the top 10 are getting this much. If they're just going to do it quite quickly, rather than just actually trying to calculate how much per, per game they're, they're making and giving them that amount. If they're just going to do it quite quickly, then they should go like the top 10 out of every team in the National League setup, including North and South, gets this. And if York are getting, I don't, I don't know how many they normally get, but let's just say they get 7,000 and that puts them uh, up in the top five. But because they're in the league below, it means that they get um, a significant you know, decrease to what they yeah. should be getting. In terms of the, the distribution, I listened to an interview with St Albans on uh, Lawrence Levy. I think they're getting 30,000 a month. Yeah, and he, I'm sure this applies to the most most other owners. And he said he, he doesn't really know why he's got that amount, but what he does know is that that amount is 75% of their expected revenue for what they they would get. So they're now wanting to look at other initiatives in which in ways that they can make that income back that 25%, which is obviously extremely hard in a time like this. And one thing that he did say that was that was I found extremely scary was that they're, look, they're only looking at fantasy short term. They can't look 12 months later because they, they don't know if they're going to be a club. And that, that applies to most clubs down that level. And I, I think it's quite sad. You talk about clubs and obviously they're scared because they're not sure they'll exist in 12 months' time. Businesses are the same. This isn't just a football thing. Businesses are only getting about 75% of what they want through a furlough scheme and things like that. So it, it's, a, it's an issue outside of football, isn't it? It's all down to the government. But I think within football, I feel like the Premier League and... It should filter down money rather than just being relying on the government. I completely agree with Cam's point. I think that the government have decided that they want to do it on attendances, which is fair enough. That's one way of measuring how to divvy up the money. But then, again, put them in the attendance order rather than just, this is in your league, this is in your league, so you, so you don't deserve that amount of money, even though your attendance would suggest that you deserve the high amount of package. I mean, York is the perfect example to look at it. I think they average around 3,000, 4,000 per game. And therefore, that probably puts them on the same sort of attendance figure as mid-table in the National League. And therefore, they're not getting that sort of revenue, rightly or wrongly so, based on the government's perspective. But um, if you're going to do it like that way, then you have to do it properly. And I don't think they have. Yeah, I mean, I think I, 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 think I agree with Cameron about it being rushed. Because, I mean... Notts County's average attendance last season was 5,000. It was, it, it, it was touched over 5,000, the highest in that division. And then the, the biggest size, as we mentioned before, weren't, weren't too far below that. And all these sides had to, well, all the teams across the National League and North and South had to hand in their average attendance. So they expected that the number and the money that they'd get back would match. And it doesn't. I mean, Boreham Wood last season averaged 724 people. So they're actually in profit from this. That can't be right, can it? They're actually, they're actually up by playing behind closed doors. It doesn't seem right. But there's 11 sides, who I'll quickly mention, uh, that it was a Hereford chairman, Andrew Graham, who, who wrote an open letter to the National League and he got the signatures of the owners of Chester, Chesterfield, Dulwich Hamlet, uh, AFC Fylde, Hereford, Kidderminster, Maidstone, Notts County, Telford, Wrexham and Yeovil, basically saying this is wrong and this needs changing. Now, this is sort of the bigger teams in this, in, across these two leagues that have signed this. And I said, well, we, we think that we deserve more money than this. Is, but the, the, the rest of the teams that haven't signed it, that aren't affected, that aren't the bigger sides, weren't even asked about this. They didn't, the first they heard about it was when they read it in the, in the media. Now, what's right and what's wrong about that? Or is it, just, is, it, is, is it all wrong, like it seems to me on the face of it? Just sounds like everything's a mess, to be honest, doesn't it? There's just no communication, is there, from, from the top down? 
and the bottom up clearly because the bottom up they're trying to tell the government one thing but then are they listening it's one of them where it's a massive debate are they getting the recognition they deserve are they getting a voice even in any of this are they getting a say and as you alluded to there Adam clearly not yeah if the National League as a governing body can't cater for size at these extremes then perhaps they're not fit for purpose I don't know about you lads, but I'm probably missing the footy. I know it's on TV and radio pretty much every day, but not going to an actual stadium with actual crowds is starting to feel more and more painful as each week rolls by. And with government restrictions being put back in place, the hope of getting fans back in stadiums just feels like it's getting pushed further and further away. But just for a moment, I want you to answer this week's feature question. What do you miss the most about a match day? Where do we start? Be fair, Ollie. Where were you actually last I think, I think it's this little... <laughs> Ollie is a proper armchair. <laughs> <I'm trying laughs> <laughs> 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 I reckon I've probably been up there with the most games here. I reckon I'm up there with Adam. I, I actually counted how many games I've been to in the week. You want to have a guess how many right. it is? That's nerdy. No, come on, lads. Have, have a guess how many you think it is. 497. Mm, that's too many. 457. I'll just tell you, 395. Oh, oh you're going to go for that, will you, Sam? I was going to go 397, <laughs> so I wasn't going to be far off. <laughs> the thing I miss most is the walk to the stadium. I park up absolutely miles away from the riverside and walk up with my brother and cousin. The lineup comes in on one of our phones, and there's always one of them. You're joking, aren't you? Why is he playing? Usually about Marvin Johnson or something. Then you walk the past the burger vans. Come on. Then you walk past the burger vans, the smell temperature, and in to grab your pre match snack. But for me, it's more like a three-course meal, to be fair. And then you hear the famous, jackpot tickets, only a pound. <laughs> it's just class, isn't it? I wonder why the Bergman did gluten-free, Dan. Oh, wait. <laughs> that's, that's classified information, Adam. <laughs> Not anymore, is it? I think for me, I tend to do more away games than home games at the moment. And before I did, when I was commentating for Spain, so I'd get to a few more borough away games than the home ones. And it's that long drive down that I missed with your mates and uh, having that chat in the car before the game. And breaking down. There. And now, yeah, all right, Dan, that's classified <laughs> information. <laughs> and then breaking down and then you get back on the road and you get to the ground. An hour or two before kick-off, you go to the pub, have a, have a pint or two, you get your pre-match meal. Again, the team news come through on your phone and then you get into that stadium about an hour before kick-off and you watch the players train and you just... Have that sort of intimate. It sort of feels intimate, doesn't it? Where you kind of clap them onto the pitch and they give you a big roar, and then just my favourite bit is just before they go back in the tunnel and they turn to the away end and give everyone a massive cheer and just roar everyone up, getting that excitement ready before kickoff. That's the main thing I miss. You know, me and Sam are both lucky the fact that we're still getting, getting to go to matches for Spennymore, and for me, yeah, Spennymore don't in a do privileged position. But Spennymore don't do Bovril, so that for me is the thing I really miss is my cup of Bovril before the match. <laughs> I, I think for me it's the little aspects that you they usually don't appreciate football. The the shouting of constant handball when the opposition side appeals for a handball, the getting up <laughs> when someone wants to get past you in your seat. It, it's things like that that you usually hear, but but now you can't go to games, you just kind of want them back. I think at the minute I don't really miss going to to Sheffield Wednesday matches at all. Uh, I'm quite happy and relieved that I don't have to go and watch that shower of rubbish every week. Um, but the thing that I miss most about football is the hope, about going to games, is the hope that it brings you. You know, there's something different about actually going to a game, feeling that atmosphere, 
and the expectation and that's what I miss really you, you don't get that watching it on the telly and I just can't wait to have that feeling back that's all for this week's episode of the rematch podcast thanks for listening we hope you enjoyed it next week we'll be back with another one of these at 6pm on Tuesday in the meantime remember to follow us on Twitter at rematch podcast to join in the debate and tell us what you miss most about going to the football matches also let us know what you think of the show we're always open to feedback but unfortunately I can't change the terrible opinions of the other lads Sorry. <laughs> <laughs>